right, so we're back at the cracks in postmodernity, and today we have Lexi Freeman, the author of the Book of Ein. Lexi, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I was just saying, I was at the launch for your uh, for your book, the party that was in New York, maybe like three weeks ago. At this point, it was it was quite the crowd. But when you when you read the short excerpt from the beginning, I was totally captivated. So I got the book right away, and. As I was saying, it was a total page turner. I just, I couldn't put it down because it's, uh, the the brand of humor you use is, I mean, it's really unique, but also really intelligent. So I, no, I just have to say, I totally recommend that everyone read it. And it was, uh, it was a really fun time to read, so. Thank you, thank you. That's yeah. very, very nice to hear. Yeah, and so obviously, you know, if you just look at the title, uh, Ayn Rand plays a significant role uh, in the the plot of the book. Um, and I want to ask first off, why Ayn Rand? Like, why did you decide to 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 base a book on a protagonist who has a kind of complicated relationship with this, you know, this historical, this intellectual figure? Um, I mean, precisely for that reason, I think I wanted to write a book about someone that everybody, well, everybody on the left sort of hates, and um, I thought it would be uh a fun challenge and i thought that you know a lot of um comedy would come out of mm -hmm. choosing a, a subject like that and um and kind of trying to shoehorn her ideas into um the contemporary sort of discourse uh even though the ideas are already in there so i don't it wasn't such it wasn't such a a monumental task to do but I thought it would be fun and um and she turned out to be a funny subject so that was lucky yeah and it's interesting because I mean obviously Ayn is is a Nietzschean of sorts you know this this whole yeah. area of self-reliance and we're seeing this Nietzschean discourse coming into the mainstream right now especially through these kinds of um I don't know like these radical forms of masculinity that we're seeing on in the Twitterverse that we're seeing all over the internet so it's interesting that you're bringing in a female uh, proponent of this kind of mentality. And Ayn Rand's personal life, her, you know, her behind the scenes story adds an extra level of, of humor of, um, I don't know, it, it adds something to the story that I think we're not, all, not already seeing with the whole self-reliance discourse right now, um, especially her relationships with men, which, you know, into, goes on to influence the protagonist. So can you talk a little bit about Ayn's personal life and how you drew that into the the plot of the book yeah I mean just uh I guess I guess I found it interesting as I was reading biographies of her um the way that she handled you know being a straight um woman uh you know in in a kind of uh like I guess in the in a Nietzschean sort of context where like, what does it mean to, um, like, how does that sort of disrupt traditional kind of gender polarity to have a woman who is, you know, um, Nietzschean? And uh, she was very interested in that, I think. And, you know, she said sort of bizarre things like America could never have a female president because there would be no one for her to date. And like all these things that are like that sort of like ring true to me in a funny way. Yeah. Um, or at least you can like map some of Hillary Clinton's uh, issues onto it. Um, maybe more in like a farcical way. 
but yeah. I feel like there's some like funny stuff in there and yeah just I guess this idea of like what does it mean to be a Nietzschean woman and how does that kind of what does that mean for you as a sexual being and like how does it yeah I just I found all of that stuff very interesting and I suppose in the context of like the girl boss like how does she um how does that stuff sort of yeah intersect with with our current ideas of like what female empowerment looks like and like you know the nightmare of online dating and yeah just I just thought it was kind of an interesting dilemma that I don't have the answers to and uh I thought yeah I thought it would be fun to sort of kind of chart what happened to Ayn and and in a sense let that sort of a similar dilemma kind of play out for the protagonist of the book yeah and as you were saying I mean Ayn is kind of a, a hated figure by many mm. In the West, in, in general, we can say, but I mean specifically, this whole narrative of self-reliance flies in the face of the the kind of cult of victimhood, um, you know, everything that's part of cancel culture. But I feel like you use this this like self-reliant ideology um, to create a, a critique of cancel culture that isn't necessarily reactionary, but that's that's kind of playful, you know, like it doesn't have this kind of uh, this resentment that so much of the reactionary discourse has, but it's it's funny, like it's it's genuinely humorous. And I feel like one of the main ways that you you pull that off is through the whole issue of the age gap, because, you know, it's it's pretty well known that Ayn Rand uh, was interested in guys who are much younger than her. And, you know, the protagonist ends up pursuing similar kinds of relationships. And if this were a man doing that with younger women, obviously it would be canceled right away. I mean, a book covering such relationships is, uh, you know, not acceptable, but and it's the the way that, that that happens in the plot. It's um, you're dancing around this like quote unquote problematic territory, but it, it again, it's genuinely hilarious because of the the conversations that ensue with these young guys. So I want to say a little bit more about that, like the whole gender gap thing and how it kind of plays into this bigger issue of like uh, what's considered problematic. Yeah, I mean, I I guess it was interesting to me to um, kind of I guess tease out like what the power differential is when it comes to an older woman and a younger man and often, and, and in this context, you know, like uh, someone who has a sort of established career um, interacting with people, men who are maybe, maybe at the beginning of their careers and just like, is it the same thing in the way that we hear about men who might take advantage of younger women seeking some kind of guidance or mentorship or something? And I guess my feeling about that stuff is, you know, that uh, we have stripped a lot of like agency away from younger women. Mm. I'm not talking about underage women, but um, in in the sense that like there's a game and there's a dynamic that's that's at play where uh, both parties are sort of, you know, like know what the power is that they hold like women understand the power of their youth and beauty and men understand the power of their status and power and uh you know whatever um financial um uh means and and so that's like kind of this thing that I think is that is is working with the reverse where um you know to me that's like the next step of me too it's like making men more aware of the power differential but then the next step seems to me to be making women aware of their role in the dynamic and like shifting the cultural norms there 
and and then I guess when it comes to the reversal with older women and younger men I don't know if it's as clear because it's not to me it's like murkier because um you know these older women may have may have a certain kind of cultural power potentially but then in terms of like the sexual power of an older woman that's a different thing when it you know uh compared to a man and and you yeah I just I feel like there's there's a way that that stuff in a sense is so um murky when you reverse it that it also shines like an interesting light on what happens with older men and younger women and it's like a good place from which to sort of unpack uh some of the some of the like that dynamic I was talking about that we haven't like really um let ourselves interrogate very much uh because the focus has been more on women as victims of a system but I think they are a part of the system so anyway and I guess in terms of like victims and resilience and this character is very much um pushing back against the idea of being a victim in any way and uh wants to be resilient and wants to um yeah kind of maintain that sense of agency and and free will which uh you know is sort of um a big part of what she's struggling with and ultimately you know that starts to unravel with the with the idea of free will itself (laughs) so um yeah I think I think this character was a fun way to like explore some of that stuff without having to like write a me too novel Mm -hmm. yeah and it's you know a lot of people who talk about these themes usually are going to turn to someone like Camille Paglia to uh (laughs) to defend their you know their arguments and she surprisingly doesn't make an appearance in this book um is that was that intentional or is that just uh, by chance I mean I never want to like overload the book with too many theorists because um I think then it just becomes very complicated and I just really wanted to stick to Ayn so there were there are a li- there's like a little bit of Nietzsche in there but he's more of a sort of I think he's used a few times kind of in a joking way just to sort of like highlight Ayn's uh theories but I just I didn't yeah I didn't want to like um you know, it's like mixing metaphors when you're mixing too many um, theorists who people have all these associations with, it gets too complicated. And I think Camille is someone who like definitely complicates things. Yes. <laughs> I mean, is like, is is a difficult person to, to kind of um, locate at all in terms of like, not just, I think, is Camille a they? I don't know anymore. She's but, you know, done, like uh, literally in terms no. of their identity and then yeah. their ideas and and like their early thinking compared to their later or like current thinking and the YouTube videos that someone may have stumbled upon. It's just like it's too much yeah. information. So I didn't really want to bring her in. I think Ayn is like, I mean, Ayn's dead. So it also helps to kind of her her identity and her legacy is pretty fixed so that means you can like play with it and complicate it and make it um as ambiguous and nuanced as you want mm-hmm. without yeah just making people really confused yeah and as you were saying the interesting thing about Ayn is that she's predominantly heterosexual woman mm-hmm. and that um that, again like that 
makes it interesting, especially consider the cultural narratives that you're challenging, you know, because Camille, as someone who's definitely, we can say, is not straight, I think it's safe no. to say, like it's um, her position in, you know, in these discussions, it's, it's different. It's different versus yeah. I'm as a straight woman. Um, the only thing that I feel like Camille, the way she might shed light on this story is, um, you know, her, as much as she also borrows a lot from Nietzsche, she's also deeply Freudian. And I think when we look at the dynamic between the main character and these younger guys, like there's this maternal parental kind of thing happening that's unspoken, mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. but she's picking up on it. And these young guys don't really realize that they're kind of looking for, for a mother figure. You know, yeah. um, and I think that sheds light on, again, like the commentary you're making on this larger bureaucratic system that wants to cancel anyone who has any problematic views that like there's this kind of, as Camille would say, there's this like maternal kind of energy behind this type of bureaucratic structure that I don't know, I think you see at play again on the structural level, but also on the interpersonal level in the relationships. Mm, yeah. And, and it's funny hearing you say that I was just thinking I mean, are these boys looking for a mother or are they looking for a father? Because <laughs> mm -hmm. I feel like maybe big boys looking for a father and uh, and in a sense, like a woman who is very Nietzschean or Rand-like is, is almost like more of a paternal figure than a maternal figure. Um, and you could say maybe a similar thing about the young boy in the second half of the book. So yes, <laughs> I think that's like, interesting uh to think about as well maybe i don't know i haven't thought about it that much yeah so um jumping to another point i want to read an excerpt from uh halfway through the book so there's this scene where the main character is having some issues in the bathroom mm -hmm. i think a little bit graphic just to warn people but um it's also <laughs> pretty hilarious so, okay, so this is what the main character says i grabbed the plunger and started stabbing at the hole as the sludge rose no, I heard myself say. No, 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 I repeated. Fuck no. And then I was praying. Please no. Praying to God, to dogs, to Ayn Rand. The sludge breached the toilet rim like a belly-crawling black beast, sliming down the sides and onto the white tiling. The shit tide bled across the floor and around the bath mat and around toward the door. I could picture it seeping into the hallway carpet. It would keep going out the front door and along the corridor, pooling over big boy's ceiling and cataracting down into his bedroom. I dropped to my knees and reached around the bowl for the toilet filter tap. Wrenching it down seemed to halt the flow. I breathed, breathed it in, and kneeling there, the truth came down, black and roaring, like the will of a building. It was all Ayn Rand's fault. So this, uh, this scatological humor, we can call it. Um, this is something I discussed with uh, Jordan Kafter when he came on the podcast, who was you know, also at the party he read there. Um, yeah, a lot of people... <laughs> I personally find that kind of humor hilarious. I've always have. And I think mm. you and Jordan are among the few people who can pull it off. But I'm wondering um, why, why is this keep coming <laughs> up in the, in, the, in, the, in the book? There's all these shit scenes. What is that about? Um, I think it's about shame uh, because I think there's uh, a lot of maybe like body shame um that is sort of underneath all the other kinds of shame that that you might have like around being someone who isn't satisfied you know this character is not satisfied with 
where their career has gone and um, they feel in some way like they are wrong or bad or have or have like um, opinions that make them somehow not a good person and you know there's just like all these ways in which they are sort of um, tortured by shame the shame of like not being right or um, there being like something kind of off about them and I feel like in a sense there's there's like the crudest form of that or like what's underneath it would be this like idea of someone you know like knowing the worst like the 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 most um embarrassing or kind of crudest thing about you which would be your shit (laughs) and or like shit is the metaphor I guess uh for other kinds of shit and also this character literally um painted the walls of their parents bedroom with their own shit when they were a kid trying to get attention so it's like I guess a way of using shame as a deflection like it's like deflecting shame um uh through comedy through jokes Mm -hmm. through like painting the walls with shit and then through these like jokes that are you know whatever shit stirring or um kind of in a way uh yeah like exposing of the 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 worst parts of a person or their most um yeah their their worst ideas and it's like if you just put it out there in a way you beat someone to the punch and they can't kind of uh they can't hurt you more than you've hurt yourself in the act of like overexposure I think yeah that's kind of the idea I mean it's interesting you're saying this shame this this self-exposure um because when Jordan came on I I mentioned to him that there's actually a Jewish poop prayer that it, you you say this prayer really? after you poop thanking God for like I your body functioning. But it, it's interesting because like first of all, this paragraph starts with the main character praying. They're not sure to God, is it to Ein to yeah. end the, you know the clogged toilet? But you know, um if you I don't know, like if you look at the biblical <laughs> dimensions of this, like when you think of I don't know, the beginning of the scriptures, like you have these people who are totally naked, and at first they're not ashamed. Because their, I don't know, like their transparency is not seen as something. Um, they're not vulnerable until after the fall, and then their nudity is something to be ashamed of. Because now they they feel exposed, not in the sense of like, okay, now you can see my body, but like now I am vulnerable to being used, to being manipulated, to being led astray. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting how like poop, in a similar way, could be mm-hmm. something you praise the creator for because it's you know this is how a body functions naturally, the release of you know excrement but it could also be something that's shameful if you you rub it on the walls if they're just mm. overflowing out of the toilet so I don't yeah know. no but that's I mean if this character wasn't such a secular Jew maybe they would have known the prayer for the for shit very few people um, <laughs> I'd never heard of it but yeah I I think um yeah I think it's it's something that like is not supposed to be seen it's supposed to you know we do so much to avoid in a sense, uh, ever having that exposed to anybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, Like we're particularly kind of uh, sensitive to that in the West. I mean, even just, and maybe this is like a weird thing to say, but I was in Greece recently and, um, and, uh, you know, 
obviously spent some time there in the past and um and I'm just always like amazed when you know you don't flush toilet paper there you just put it in a little bin and I just like find it incredible um it almost feels like something that would like change it must change your relationship to like shit and other people's shit and to be just like constantly exposed to like other people's shit like the the papers in the little toilet every time you put your paper in there you're seeing and you just like become accustomed to it and it's sort of like you know it, it becomes more normal but I feel like um not that Greece is not the west but I feel like other places where we have uh more robust s- sort of sewage systems or pipe systems um you know we, we just like will do anything to not see that stuff or have yeah. it like exposed mm-hmm. in any way and yeah so I think yeah it's the ultimate kind of body shame um yeah because I mean I have family in Greece and I remember yeah. the first time we visited them you know my side of the family we have uh we have bowel issues you know full right. disclosure and we were super embarrassed to use our family members bathrooms like you know really? they smell they're gonna judge us yeah. but to them like yes this is what we do we smell yeah. our toilet paper in the in the waste yeah. bin but I think you're right that it does reflect <laughs> like in the U.S. and you know other maybe we could say other Anglo nations like there yeah. is this puritanical mentality that wants to hide things that are considered unseemly whereas yeah. I would say in the Mediterranean it's different because it's I mean it's yeah. not puritanical culture it's not even Protestant no. but no exactly but in Japan I feel like they with their they have special I feel like they are also more concerned with covering that stuff up uh, with their with their toilets. No, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I would <laughs> um, be curious to know more. Yes, I think it's worth writing a whole novel on yes. um, on different cultures' relationship to shit. I mean, there's obviously going to be a lot of PhDs that have been written about this, but I think it's good. And yeah, I love that part of um, the novelist Jordan's book with the shit the shit stuff was yeah because I think for him like it's the other side of the spectrum like shit as this kind of sacred thing whereas for you you're Mm. using the shame side of it but I think they they complement each other in a way yeah well I think I don't I don't know if uh I'm just trying to remember like like Philip Roth how does he treat shit Mm. um I feel like there's a little bit less there's still shame, but there's not the same kind of shame maybe for men as women. You know, we all know that, yeah, women are sort of encouraged to hide that stuff more than men. And, um, yeah, so I feel like I feel like it's probably a bit of a gendered thing as I, well. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I mean, my reading of that scene, in a way, I felt like, so the fact that this like is like diarrhea overflowing it's this uh <laughs> i kind of saw it as like the excess of her obsession with ein's ideology and the fact that um the fact that in a ultimately at least the way she adheres to it is in an ideological sense to the point that mm. it's detached from reality like you're trying to impose ein's ideas onto your life in a way that like maybe they don't actually apply or don't really make sense and I saw this yeah. to become, um, this seems to like be a theme that's weaved throughout the rest of the novel because you see several other ideologies pop up other than Ayn. So like, 
you know, in the beginning, you have like the victimhood, the like the social justice stuff. You have Ayn's self-reliance, the Nietzschean stuff. But then when she goes to Greece and goes to this, you know, this commune, this retreat of sorts, you have this um, what I would call a kind of Gnostic spirituality inspired loosely by by Sufi ideas, kind of fringe Sufi ideas. Um, that's all about ego death, self-abnegation. Mm-hmm. And it, again, these seem to be like conflicting ideas, but at the end of the day, like what they all have in common is that they, there are ideologies that enable you to kind of justify your um, your self-indulgent uh, actions or your, your self-interested ideas. Like it's because they are detached from the real, you know? And when you, when, that's why I'm saying like, when I think of this mm. just scene, it's like <laughs> the excess of wanting to use ideology as an escape from the real overflows like diarrhea in a toilet i don't know mm. but i so that's why i want to ask you just like <laughs> if you could talk a little bit more about like the kind of spirituality she finds at this place in greece and again especially like the the sufi idea of the, the ego death you know say say a little more about that um yeah i mean i like your reading of the you know obviously this idea of excess shit or like um as ideology itself as the kind of like yeah, the sort of purging of, you know, like when you feel you have sort of been living according to or, or just thinking according to a set of principles and in a sense like damning everyone who doesn't think like you according to that ideology and then the sort of realisation of in a sense that like not that it's all wrong but that it's it's limited and, is, and in a sense it's created ideas or reactions that are shit because they're just like Mm -hmm. um so yes there is a sense of like what have I done in that moment um and then I guess with spirituality um yeah I think the ideas for me that were most interesting to explore you know in this kind of like sort of um hybrid or like yeah uh sort of medley of different eastern kind of philosophies that she encounters at this um commune I think the thing that like is most interesting to me about that stuff is there is a sense of self um, self-reliance that goes along with spiritual practice where, you know, you're accepting things as they are, not trying to change things or people. Um, and in a sense, taking responsibility for your own happiness and your own um, yeah, place in the world and that idea of karma and just, you know, how that stuff sort of maps onto a Randian philosophy of, um, you know, self, self-sustainment or whatever, you know, her idea of like the self living for itself and not others. Um, and then the idea of freedom that's kind of tied to that, that, you know, um, in a sense that, yeah, that individual freedom is sort of, is obviously a huge part of of that of of um that kind of eastern philosophy and then obviously randian philosophy and then also you know it is one huge part of liberal kind of ideology although it gets all twisted in the current iteration of you know like how identity politics functions and how it ends up sort of like suppress or like you know um yeah restricting (laughs) how you can be as an individual in a kind of paradoxical sense uh but yeah I think I think um and yeah just that kind of radical idea of 
living for oneself and the freedom inherent in that. But then obviously on the other side, the sort of alienation or loneliness when you don't, yeah, when you're living for yourself and there's no communitarian kind of impulse. Mm. Um, yeah. No, I was going to say it's, I mean, it was interesting because like two days after I went to, to your book launch, I went to an event um at the the catholic worker the the place that dorothy day founded and there was a speaker talking about like a sufi spirituality and she kept saying that um you know this whole idea of the death of the ego self-abnegation is is a huge part in most brands of sufism and one person you know said like but isn't that isn't that dangerous like doesn't that lead to like the destruction of the self wouldn't that lead you to being destructive towards others and this is something that comes up like towards the end of her stay, you know, on the island in Greece, that she sees that this whole, again, this like ego death ideology becomes an excuse for people to do things that are very self-seeking and that don't really take into account the needs of others. So there's this, this cognitive dissonance there. And I don't know, like I couldn't help but think of uh, Christopher Lash when I was reading it, like the culture of narcissism, mm -hmm. because Lash ultimately ends up arguing that narcissism is not born from too much self-love. It's born of a lack of self-love. It's born yeah. of a lack of a genuine personality, true self-knowledge. And it, I, I don't know, like that's kind of what this character is seeing. Yeah. Um, that the selfishness is born out of the lack of a, a true self, you know? Yeah, which, you know, um, I mean, I was, I read The Culture of Narcissism before I started writing this book because, um, yes, it's very much about like uh, narcissism and, and this idea of uh, what the ego is and, and what a dysfunctional, well, I mean, his ego isn't dysfunctional, but, yeah. um, but I guess I feel like the idea behind, you know, ego death, I, as a, or I don't know if I agree that it's destructive to other people, because I guess, you know, and in terms of maybe the book or even like um, any kind of behavior that, that would seem to be selfish, um, say in terms of like, uh, you know, cheating on someone because you want to, because you want to. And, um, and I and that's obviously like what happened to Ayn Rand and how she sort of kind of fell apart at the end where her lover was cheating on her and she kind of couldn't reconcile his selfishness basically. But that's sort of different. That's selfishness. That's not um, selflessness. And I guess the ego death thing is sort of um, like it works when, when nobody has an ego. That's, I think that the distinction and like the, the sort of complication, if, if you are acting um, sort of from a place of just, uh, I don't know, pure, um, uh, like just listening to your intuition or intentions and, and sort of not worrying about, um, other people's, what other people might think. Uh, I think that can work in an environment where everyone is doing the same thing, like where everybody is sort of like pretty, um uh well has killed their ego I mean that there's no such thing really unless you're like enlightened but has a very sort of um doesn't have a fragile ego basically so that none of these things can be taken personally because that's really the that's yeah. what happens when someone gets hurt is that they take an action that may not really have anything to do with them and they take that 
someone else's action personally. And I guess I think, I think, yes, in a spiritual community where everyone is sort of seeking to be free of ego and like you even just look at like polyamorous sort of Mm -hmm. communities and there's kind of this agreed upon idea that like, um, that there's like enough love to go around that like, we don't have to be hurt. Like you don't have to be hurt by someone else loving both you and another person. And, you know, and, and that's a real, there's like a lot of ego death in that idea. Cause so much of the ego is tied to this need to be, you know, um, special and unique and some, and like the sort of the source of somebody's affection or adoration. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I kind of think, I guess I think it works when there are, people all pursuing the same thing and then yeah I don't know what happens Uh, (laughs) yeah it raises the question if like there's a type of community that simultaneously teaches you to detach from your ego but also fills you with a genuine sense of being valued you know like um like you're saying you're pursuing some ideal you're pursuing a an ideal form of love that again it's like it's not an egotistical love but it's one that they like truly respects and appreciates the value of the other person, you know, like that, it leads you to this kind of, uh, this middle point that could yeah. be the, uh, alternative, you know, but uh, I guess, I mean, I think, I, I don't know that you need to, I feel like there's a real, there's like this, um, this kind of mania, especially in America, in the U S, um, for sort of like filling the void with like affirmations and letting everyone know that they are good enough and they are, and it's like, what if you didn't do that? What if you just let the void be there? Oh, and, and like, just like, could you survive the void? And I think everyone's terror of the void gets in the way of like actually experiencing it and surviving it. And I guess I've had these experiences in meditation where I'm not trying to fill that emptiness with um, like someone else's love, even love for myself, God's love, whatever you want to like all of those things it's just like what is there like what is in the emptiness is it like this cold Um, metallic space of like nothingness or is it like in my experience it is a a positive it is like a positive kind of space or the quality of it is positive it's like it's not negative it's it's full it's not empty um so so I think with Sufism, and I don't know that much about it, but um, I think there is more of a willingness to just embrace the emptiness and obviously like trust that God's God, God is there in it, whatever you want to call God, yeah. um, like existence, being, whatever, but you don't have to like inject it with this sort of like <laughs> some affirmation about like, again, that's just about ego. If you're like, you are enough, you are loved um so yeah yeah because I mean at least just speaking from my own experience like I don't I agree like I don't find it helpful if people try to presume to be able to fill this void that that I have because no no person is going to completely fill that I think like true community true friendship can start when you say hey like I know I can't fill that void instead I want to stay there with you like I want to seek I want to seek whatever that answer is with you rather than attempting to fill it for you 
yeah. as you're saying, like when you when you seek a, a true goal like that, or a realistic goal like that, I think that can truly unify people. And and again, going back to what you're saying about the Sufis, like there are many different brands of Sufism. You know, the one that she sees in the retreat is it's a very particular kind. But you know, I don't know. Like I know Sufis who live that like genuine sense of community that mm. again can it's fulfilling precisely because you're not trying to fill the void. Um, yeah, and and, and it also kind of it makes you. And I guess this ties to another part of the book, but it makes you like if you are not depending on other people to fill the void of your, your you know, narcissistic void or whatever, then it makes you actually a much better person. You are not a better person in the sense that you are accepting of others, you your expectations or your capacity for disappointment and rage are much smaller. You are merciful, like you are not um and in that in that sense, that's the part of like the sort of whole kind of altruistic or virtue signaling kind of leftist uh, right. impulse that I find very um, suspicious. Is this? I don't believe that for a bunch of people who are so hypersensitive and fragile, like that there is a possibility for mercifulness, like for any true compassion, because that comes from a place of actually being okay with whatever is and letting people kind mm. of fuck up and fail. And obviously not just saying, oh, well, you can do whatever you want, but like not being so hurt by someone else's actions that you can't, you can't kind of see the bigger picture or have compassion or like recover from it. Yeah. And yeah. Mm. I mean, so there's, there's one other excerpt I want to read real quick before we, before we close that I think, ties in perfectly with this point you just made. Um, so yeah, so the, the main character who leaves this retreat, she's in Athens, she's looking at the Parthenon. Um, and she says, the Parthenon was netted in scaffolding and on each step, people clustered out of breath, phones dutifully raised. I felt no awe or sense of mystery. I wasn't inspired to coo at the cradle of Western culture. I had never really believed in much of anything, except maybe books. Books which were not a boyfriend or a baby, not people at all. Books which could stomach paradox and knew things that knew that both things, good and bad, could be true. Baby was wrong about books. You didn't have to be enlightened to understand them. Great art was a gateway to the sublime. Um, so this point about how books are able to capture paradox, you know, without, like you're saying, like without trying to fill the void, without trying to propose an ideological solution that's detached from reality. Because again, like if we look at the real, if we look at our lives, like where it's full of paradoxes, it's full of things that don't make sense. And I think like, yeah, like the solution starts from accepting that reality rather than flocking yeah. to some abstract utopian ideal. You know? yeah. And as yeah. you say, like it's in books that uh, books give you space to to delve into that paradox, you know. Exactly, exactly. That's why I don't tweet or engage with anything on social media because I just think it's a terrible forum for like, dealing with complex issues it's you know like that's that's where the long form essay or the or the book you know novel nonfiction, whatever like that's thank god we have those things to like remind us that things are not as simple and and like uh and to kind of remind us that this idea of good and evil is is um not helpful <laughs> like yeah. never helpful yeah, yeah. Um, 
So one more question, Lexi. Are you uh, are you surprised by the feedback the book's been getting? Because it's it's getting covered in a, a lot of big places. Yeah, I am. I guess um, my first experience, you know, the experience of publishing my first book was so different. Uh, I think I've put that down to a combination of like timing. I think I think people are quite sick of cancel culture at this point, so there's more openness um to this kind of book and this and these ideas uh but i don't know and and the ayn rand of it all is probably like you know i think people do like to sort of talk about her make fun of her um and but even just you know re-engage with some of the ideas that are not terrible and of course everyone I think I've ever spoken to like confesses to having read her as a 15 year old and like loving the books and you know so like everyone has this kind of confusing relationship with her on the left and um so I think that's part of it and otherwise I don't really know I guess yeah I I think um I hope it's also just that you know people like sort of are like ready to laugh a little bit at like the, the the sort of the cancel culture stuff and the way that we've all been kind of terrorized into silence over the last few years I think maybe people are just um tired of that and and this book offers a little bit of respite or something yeah no and that's I mean I think that's the solution to most things is to learn how to laugh and I think yeah. a good way to start is pick up this book I mean you'll, you'll be laughing left and right so so Lexi thank you for, for writing it first of all but thank you also for coming on to, to talk about it my pleasure this has been a really really good conversation thank you <laughs> all right yeah.